Welcome to Georgia Detail, the podcast series about modern cloud analytics and the people and products driving innovation in this world. So my name is Mark Rittman, and I'm joined in this episode by Dylan Baker, a freelance analytics consultant who many of you may know from the Looker and DBT discourse forums, his previous role as BI lead at Growth Street, and from the DBT London meetup, which met for the first time a month or so ago. So welcome to the show, Dylan, and it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So Dylan, um, just um, just you know, for anyone who hasn't heard of you, just uh, do a brief intro as to uh, who you are and um, and how you came to be in London. Sure. So uh, as you said, I'm a freelance analytics consultant. I help uh, predominantly startups in London get their head around analytics and particularly kind of the infrastructure and modeling sides of that. Uh, I've been, uh, I've got a bit of a funny accent. I've been in the UK for about 13 years. I grew up, I was born in Canada, grew up in Canada, and then moved to the UK as a teenager. And I've been here ever since, really. Um, And how did I get to London? I guess uh, I came originally, actually, as a journalist. I came and did my master's in London um, as a broadcast journalist, bizarrely enough, having hated my my maths degree, um, and then very quickly moved away from that into BI proper and have uh, been in startups doing BI ever since. Okay, and you're moving back to Toronto soon, aren't you? Or moving over there very shortly? I am. Later this year, uh, we're planning a move back to, uh, to Toronto. I grew up in Montreal. Mm. Oh, right. Okay, brilliant. So, so you, I mean, how I know you is from uh, some, some brilliant posts and uh, blog posts and things you've written about Looker and analytics development in general and, and what we call the modern analytics stack. Um, but you work primarily with um, what you refer to as VC-funded startups. I mean, tell us, what, what, yeah, if anybody doesn't know, what, is, what are VC-funded startups and why did that area interest you really? So I initially ended up in startups. My first job in London was as a tech reporter at a small B2B tech publication that focused um, on tech startups in London around uh, Silicon Roundabout, which I guess is a term that we use less and less these days. And I kind of fell in love with startups. Um, I think there's a, a speed and agility to many or most startups that I found very contagious as somebody writing about them whilst also kind of in a very small publishing business themselves. And I've never left, really. I um, very briefly ran a digital publishing business off that after that and have been in startups ever since. And so to answer your question as to, I guess, what are VC-backed startups for anyone who's, who doesn't know, um, when somebody thinks up of an idea, they'll often go and raise a small amount of seed funding early on, maybe a couple hundred thousand, couple, you know, low millions. And then often if they find product market fit, they'll raise a, a larger amount of money. And that's typically when I will come in and work with a business. It's typically around the stage that I've uh, had my permanent roles with businesses. And it's really when they often start thinking about analytics in a serious way and start wanting to put meaningful infrastructure and reporting in place for the first time, you know, putting in place uh, a modeling layer, putting in place a data warehouse. And that's right around the point that I typically work with businesses, helping them set that up. Okay. Okay. So actually I was listening to um, a podcast that was recorded with, uh, with, um, um, Tristan Handy from uh, Fishtown uh, other day actually, and he was talking about the growth stages that, that that startups go through, and at what point they need um, analytics resource, and what point they start to kind of hire in, and so on. And <clears throat> interestingly, the the, um, the example he kind of gave at the start was was where people hire in um, ahead of BI, really. You know, after after they get some funding, they get ahead of BI, and that was the role you did at Growth Street, wasn't it? I mean, maybe tell us a bit about what you how you came in to join growth street and what your original remit was there and and how things looked at the time so i joined growth street as a, an analyst as a business intelligence analyst really but as 
the first hire really in the business to to look at data and with a remit to grow that out and start thinking about what, particularly on the infrastructure side, uh, needed to be put in place to facilitate reporting around the business. And they were really at that kind of growth stage. They were starting to think very seriously about these things. They'd done had some reporting historically, a lot of which was in this ecosystem of Google Sheets, which we can talk a bit about uh, more about. And so I came in as the first hire to build out a small team to put in place the infrastructure, which was a great time. I think it's a very it's part of the reason I continue to work with businesses like that. It's uh, very fun and can be very satisfying to build these things from the ground up and really go from zero to one, helping people answer things that they'd never had the answer to before, or answer things much more quickly than they really thought, given where they'd been, you know, a couple months earlier. And so I came in there. I was at Growth Street for two years. We grew a small analytics team brought in a BI tool, Looker, built out a a kind of modeling infrastructure around a warehouse. And uh, that was largely kind of what my responsibility was. Okay, okay. So so, so was it not the case that they say the engineers in the company would do that would build out the analytics stack, you know, or or maybe, maybe not a DBA, but certainly the infrastructure team? Is that not what things happen? What happens normally? I think there's there were two bits and some of it's specific to the business and some of it's just where we are in terms of analytics these days. I think generally the you want to have your engineers, particularly at that stage in the business, really focus on the product. A rapidly changing business, Growth Street's financial technology company, a huge amount to be done on the product side. And really, we wanted to not distract them from, from that work. I think we're also at a point in where analytics technology is, where you can set up a lot of it without leaning too heavily on an engineering team. I think the tooling available to people is now increasingly accessible um, to be able to set it up from scratch without yeah, working without having to lean too much on, on those types of people in the business. That said, we definitely did work with them a fair bit to you know, set up Redshift and just make sure from a security point of view, all of that was set up. So it wasn't that we were completely detached from the engineering team. Um, and we worked very closely with them to get data from the applications into the warehouse. But I think increasingly, you're seeing very self-sufficient analytics teams within organizations who don't fully self-serve from a tooling point of view, but definitely have the ability to do a lot of the heavy lifting themselves. Okay. Okay. So I guess, again, in terms of the tools you 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 kind of got hold of and how you worked, there were various options you had there. I mean, back in the old days of, of the first dot-com boom, it would be the first thing any startup would do is go and spend millions uh, with big vendors and, and spend, you know, buy everything from one vendor, the analytics, the database, all that kind of stuff. Or another extreme might be to go and do it with open source. But you went down the route of, of getting, I want to say best of breed, but certainly a modular approach to how you put your stack together. I mean, just tell us about that and, and some of the thinking behind that, really, and, what, what, and how that worked out for you. So we were very cognizant of the fact that what we were going to put in place in day one was going to have to change a little bit as we grew, that the requirements of a business when they're 40 people is different to what they need when it's 100 people, and it's different again when they're at 200 people. And I think we wanted to make sure that we weren't locked into anything and that we had for where we were at that time, a, a best-in-class solution for each component of our analytics stack. And so it ended up bringing us to a place where we did have a very, as you said, very modular stack. We had a third party, for the most part, third-party ETL tools to get the data into the warehouse. Uh, warehouse itself, we used Redshift. We then used DBT, an open-source tool, to do a lot of the data modeling, and then brought Looker in. 
at the uh, actually had mode originally and then ultimately looker in at the reporting side and i think the fact that we were able to move from mode to looker reasonably quickly uh, was testament to the kind of modularity of the stack and the amount of work that we did in, in different parts to get that right and did continue to evolve as the business grew okay okay so so we talked about looker and mode there as, as you know two sort of front-end tools but what about the the, the the I suppose the data engineering side the back end the data pipeline side how did you go about solving that problem and uh, getting services set up for that so we were lucky that we as a business used predominantly third-party tools that were well supported by the ETL vendors stitch fivetran aluma um, and actually stitch covered for for us initially all of it except for our Postgres database, I think, which we did through AWS's database migration service. But, so we were very lucky that from kind of off-the-shelf tooling from AWS, as well as Stitch, which can be very cost-effective at the early stages of a startup, we were able to do most of it, uh, or all of our getting, getting the data into the warehouse through those tools. In time, we added tooling, uh, added kind of tools across the business that we used that were more niche, that weren't as well supported and uh, contracted people to build Singer Taps, which again, worked really well with Stitch. And that's kind of why we stayed with Stitch was that we were supported for the bulk of what we needed. And then where, where we weren't, and frankly, no one supported the tools. Some of them were, were very niche things. We were able to integrate that with Stitch by building with Singer, the, the open source platform that they've released. Okay. Okay. So, and, and so you, you're at, um, at Grow Street for a while. <clears throat> and, um, but then that, that something must have happened or, or certainly that led on to where you are now, which is that you've moved now into sort of freelancing and I suppose offering your services to, to multiple companies. Yeah. What, what was the, what was the kind of motivation and what led to you, um, you know, posting that thing famously on Twitter saying, uh, you know, you, you've finally done it now. You're actually going to go ahead and, uh, and, and, and move into the kind of freelance world. What, what was the thinking and the drivers behind that? Part of it was personal. Part of it was driven by uh, a move to Canada later this year and kind of maximizing for optionality and consulting definitely ticked that box. But a lot of it was, I think, a desire to help businesses do analytics better. I think lots of people, I think analytics has changed a lot over the last five years. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to see, I think, a, a reasonably new way of doing analytics at a few different businesses over the past five years or so. Um, I've been very lucky with the experiences that I've got at, at various different startups. And I really enjoy helping businesses start that and be able to make those correct decisions from day one. I think I've seen a lot of businesses make very poor decisions early on with how they set up analytics, and it sets them back years sometimes. They end up down, far down the road with things that just don't scale or aren't modular or aren't reproducible. And I really feel very strongly about helping businesses in that space. And I think there's um, a lot of demand there. I think people, businesses generally are really more and more seeing the value of data, really understanding that it's key to building uh, a great business. And so I wanted to help facilitate that. I, I really enjoy working with those businesses. And so uh, they seemed like the, the right move to do that. Okay, okay. And I think that, that's often I mean, it's certainly a driver for me that you've, you've got a bit of a mission, really, and a, and a, and a, a philosophy about how you do things. <clears throat> and, and as you say, uh, I suppose analytics has changed a lot in the last few years. And it's a lot more, I think, about more, it's more aligned with software development. It's more technical. Um, 
but the scale at which you can do things and the, and the impact you can have is, is 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 amazing. And this is the kind of thing I want to talk about really in this in this interview with you to talk about, I suppose, a couple of things that you've come become particularly, I suppose, associated with some of the thinking around the API, Looker API, or just DevOps and so on in general with analytics. And later on, talk about another talk you did, which is about actually how we come to make decisions and, and so on. And let's start off really by a few weeks ago, I came along to the uh, the Looker, uh, the, sorry, the DBT meetup in, in London. <clears throat> and uh, actually, no, it was the Looker one, wasn't it? It was the Looker joint event that actually I organised, fair enough, and you know, I invited you along as a speaker. And um, and you were talking there about uh, about the Looker API and scaling security. Um, just you know, taking a step back, what was the genesis of the idea around that presentation? And at a high level, what were you talking about? And we can drill into some of the things, topics as, after that. Yeah. So when I was at Growth Street, we were heavy users of Looker. Most teams around the business used it. And a problem that we had was that we wanted to be able to have an audit trail of who had access to what data and when. I think Looker is great as a tool. I think the kind of advent of being able to have so much data available to end users across the business is fantastic. But the other side of that is you need to think a lot about data security and what you make available to people. And at the very least, in my opinion, having an audit trail of who had access to what data, you know, who had access to what model. Um, increasingly, as businesses become more sophisticated, you need to report on those things to any, any number of parties. And that was something that the, we found the Looker platform didn't do for us as well as we really wanted to. But lucky that they have an API that they refer to as having 110% coverage of, of what you can do in the tool. And so we used it to build uh, or start building, and I, which I've since uh, finished working on, a tool that allows you to change and control your groups, roles, model sets, and permission sets via the command line. So you define it all in a YAML file and you can run it either locally or as part of a you know, continuous integration setup. And what that means is you can make those YAML files version controlled and ensure that you've got an audit trail of all the changes to, to part of your security settings for Looker, ensuring you know who was able to do what and when in the platform. Okay, okay. So so what, what's the advantage? I mean, because obviously within Looker, you can define roles and groups and, and permissions and model sets and so on. Why? What was the driver for having it, say, do, doable from the command line or from a YAML file? And what, what, was the, what does that add to things, really? And what does that align with? So I think there's two components there. I think the first one is having it in a YAML file, and that fundamentally makes it version controllable. So every time you make a change to it, you can you know, use Git, and you can ensure that that change is being tracked every time that file changes. And that's really useful if you want to be able to look back and go, who had access to this model or explorer at this point in time? And that will be able to make it clear to you by going back in your Git history. The other side of it was just being able to have these things, the uh, kind of configuration as code, being able to edit these things en masse, doing bulk changes, which you can do. You don't have to, you know, change things at a roll by roll. You can make all the changes to the YAML file at once and then push them, which is also nice from a workflow point of view. It means that you can uh, kind of see in one place all of that in text in your text editor and push it in one go and be confident that those changes have all have all been made. 
Okay. Okay. So, so I mean, I suppose automation and DevOps in general would look at projects and analysis projects. I mean, it's it, it's becoming an increasingly more important thing, isn't it? And there and there's you know there's lots of kind of I suppose uh, frameworks and platforms you need to integrate with now in companies. I mean, what 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 is what does what does what does good look like really on a project that you're involved in that that touches on these sort of areas? I think good is about making the developer experience as seamless and as comfortable as possible. I think for years we've had really high quality tooling for software engineers for developers they can you know push a pull request or they can uh, you know create a pull request and they'll receive 12 different flashing lights on their github pull request that tell them yep this is passed this is passed this is passed this hasn't you should go look at that and i think for a long time analytics has lagged behind that we haven't provided the same level of sophistication or tooling to people who do analytics work. And it just makes their day-to-day work less smooth, a bit more frustrating. You have to do more stuff manually. And I think we're seeing now uh, a move in that direction. I think we're seeing a huge improvement in what type of tooling can be made available. And so for me, good is about, well, how do we make the the analytics developer, analytics engineer, BI analyst role as smooth as possible? How do we let them make changes and get feedback on those changes as quickly as possible so that they're not you know, wasting time on things that, uh, that could be automated and that, frankly, they don't enjoy doing? And it's been great to see Looker over the past few years start building themselves some of those open source things. So they released um, a tool called Look At Me Sideways recently, which provides um, some linting and other feedback on Looker changes. I know Warby Parker recently released uh, LookML Linter. And so more and more, there is stuff being being built in that space. And so for me, it's how do I make the life as easy as possible for the other people who are working in these code bases, working in these tools? How do I let them work as quickly as possible and have confidence that they're pushing kind of high quality, reliable code? Okay. Okay. So, so you, 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 man, I think in Growth Street, you man, end up managing a team of, of several kind of, I suppose, analysts and so on. What, what, I, I'm interested, what kind of skills would you look for in someone who is an analyst that you'd be, you'd be recruiting really? So, if you, if you had that role within a company like, say, Growth Street or the companies you're working with, what, what is the typical kind of skill set and, I suppose, outlook on how you develop things you'd be looking for when you recruit? So I think a lot of the skills haven't changed from what you know people would have been looking for before. It's being curious. It's having good uh, softer skills in particular. I think kind of engaging with end users is a key part of it. I think where it's particularly changed is looking for people who have a desire to do things in the scalable way and not write the same SQL query for the seventh time or a version of the same SQL query for the seventh time. But really think about, particularly if you're an organization that used Looker, What's the underlying data model and what's the underlying kind of explore and looker that, you know, allows me to do this once and take a bit longer, but to answer those seven questions and a a number of other questions really well. I think it's people who think in that way and aren't just trying to answer the question once, but are really forward thinking about, well, these are the other questions that this type of person could ask. These are the other questions that may be of interest. And often it's not that that person's going to go off and ask them, answer them, but it's they kind of can foresee what an analyst in a different team that uses Looker may want to do. And it's obviously hard to test. I think often it's people who think in a kind of software engineering type way, though that's not really where we had the most success hiring. I think actually it's, um, we hired, I think, 
uh, analyst who I left at Growth Street, who was there as part of the team, um, was a grad and we'd hired as a grad and really just had demonstrated an ability to, to think in that way and do things in a scalable way that, that would serve the business uh, going forward really well. Okay, so so you mentioned the Looker API there. I mean, um, what, what, I mean, you've built things off of that, and, and I'd be interested to understand what else you've been doing with that as well. But but, but for anyone who doesn't know what the Looker API is, um, just maybe just kind of what is it, and how do people make use of it, and and what is it there primarily to do, really? So the Looker API is a RESTful API that you can make kind of HTTP requests to, and it allows you to basically control your Looker instance. So almost anything that you can do in your Looker instance, you could control via your API, whether that's creating a user, creating a group, uh, seeing what uh, LookML model is. Uh, you can really kind of get all the information that you'd want or almost all the information you want from your Looker instance via the API. And so you can do things like automating the creation of users or automating the creation of groups. Or uh, one thing that we're starting to look at a lot, we use DBT, which is where a lot of our underlying data lives. And people have to straddle both those systems when they make changes. If they change a field in DBT, they need to make sure that the corresponding fields in Looker are all kind of referencing the same thing. And Looker doesn't give that to you. It tells you if there's kind of references within Looker, you know, content that is built on fields that no longer exist. But it won't actually tell you if the underlying column in the underlying database does exist. And that's something that we're thinking about using the Looker API and DBT to test, so ensuring, pulling down every dimension from every explorer and then running those against the warehouse in an automated fashion and making sure that nobody's going to run a query in the Looker front end that gives them an error because of something that they push in DBT. And part of the problem is that you don't realize that there's a problem until somebody, somebody actually tries to run that query in Looker. And that often won't end up being you as the analyst. It's your marketing, someone in marketing or mm. someone in sales. And when that error comes up, you immediately erode the confidence you have with that user. And so I think with self-service, which I firmly believe in as a model for kind of sharing analytics around a business, you need to be really confident that what you're shipping works because it's really easy to erode confidence with, with the end user if they get the wrong answer a few times or can't get the answer they want at all a few times. And so that's really where I think about using the Looker API. It's also, frankly, just useful for scripting things. So things that you might want to automate, whether that's just deleting old Git branches. So you can control uh, and view all the Git branches through the Looker API. And that's something that I'll regularly, uh, I have a script that deletes all unused Git branches that are more than three months old. And that's, again, something that you can have someone go and do through the UI. But if you're capable of using an API and capable of writing Python, in my case, you can do really quickly. Okay, okay. So, so and you mentioned about testing there as well. And, and I remember there was... Interesting. I think they they announced that Looker joined last year. Um, that there was going to be a, a regression test framework in in Looker itself, and I don't know whether that's happened to that, whether that's still happened or not. But I, I mean that it just raised the bigger question, and I found this on projects as well I've been working on recently. That how you get people to build the tests at the time that you do, they build out the, the Looker content. And I know there are tests within DBT you can build, um, and I know there's ways of doing this, but. It's, I find it quite hard sometimes to actually know what it is to measure the results against from the source system. It's it's not quite as not quite as easy in practice as it is in theory. I mean, what's your thoughts on? Do you have any thoughts really on building robust tests and regression things and so on into things as you do it, or is that more of a kind of a, an aspiration really? No, we do 
less on the looker side, but more on the DBT side. We do think a lot about testing. I'd love to advance the conversation with testing around looker. I um I agree. I'm really I saw the the release that came out last year. I was at we were both at Join in San Francisco, and I'm reasonably excited to see see what they do around regression regression testing in looker. It's something that we don't do a huge amount of yet. We trust that the data that we put in via DBT is well tested. Um, and we do do it at, at the time. We kind of, uh, different organizations, having tests on every model that gets created is often the requirement uh, of a pull request. You can't push a model unless at least there's a key that is unique and not null. I push everyone, uh, someone called Josh Temple, who works at Milk Bar in New York, wrote a really fantastic article about how they think about testing around DBT and the rest of their tooling, but around data. And I'd uh, highly recommend people go and, and seek that article out because it really um, kind of advanced my thinking in that area. And I think it's a really, uh, for lots of people, thought-provoking article around testing and analytics because I think it's not a thing that people have done for the most part. I think we, we write SQL queries and ship them and often don't really think about uh, tests fundamentally are things that validate our assumptions about a data. And so you have an assumption about a table and you should go and write a test that allows you to automate confirming whether that assumption is true or not. And it's we do it a lot as part of our work, but I think it's historically not a thing that people have thought enough about in analytics. Okay. What about performance? I mean, again, the thing that I've experienced a lot of is, is something's built out, but it, it performs so slow as to be unusable. And, 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 you know, and the thinking is, well, we'll sort that later on. You know, do you, when you build out stuff in, in, in analytics and looker, do you, do you address performance as a, as a sort of a, a number one thing, or is it something that is it addressed as you go along? I mean, what, what, just curious, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? It's more something that we address as we go along, we definitely, as we test out a new thing, ensure that it, it doesn't run incredibly slowly, but we don't uh, in any way other than user testing, test it out initially, but we definitely do testing kind of after the fact and on an ongoing basis. Looker's, uh, you actually, your talk at the Looker meetup was all about the system activity explorer that they released. It allows you to understand how long queries take and what's being used. And we use that a lot with a number of my clients. We use it a lot at Growth Street to understand if there were areas of the data that were regressing in terms of the speed that they could be queried or whether performance on the whole. And so it's less a thing that we think about as we push work, that we do validate that it, it's able to be queried in a reasonably timely manner. But really on an ongoing basis, we think a lot about uh, how the warehouse is performing and what might have happened to do that or whether it's just a degradation generally and, and how we can tackle that. Okay, okay. So the other talk I heard from you was was actually the the, the meetup that you organised, which was the DBT one. And I came in, <clears throat> I have to admit, came in halfway through because my train was delayed from back from Brighton. And um, but you were talking about about how you make decisions um, and how you think about probability and, and so on there. And I'm curious to kind of hear a bit more about that talk, really. So just just kind of re just in summary, what was the talk about? And what again, what led into that? What was your motivations before we get into the detail of it? So the talk itself was about how you can help people to think probabilistically, or how you yourself can think probabilistically, and how you as an analyst can help your organization think more probabilistically particularly around kind of understanding uncertainty or being comfortable with uncertainty and also how we make better predictions and how we kind of assess our confidence in predictions that we make 
day to day around things like how much work will get done or what the timeline of a project will be or what the success of a feature will be. And so it was really all around how do we help people think and calibrate the predictions that they make day to day. It was um, inspired by a handful of things. I'd uh, recently been on holiday and I read Nate Silver's The Signal and the Noise. And he talks a lot about it, writes a lot uh, in the book about how poor we are at making predictions. He shows a graph, uh, which is a survey from, or it's the results of it, uh, an edition of the survey of professional forecasters in the US, which happens either quarterly or monthly. And a bunch of professional forecasters who are economists and other things were asked, what do you think the GDP of the US will be the next year? And this was, I guess, November 2008. And they all said, we think it'll grow 3% or 2.7% and put the likelihood of a shrinking being infinitesimal and the idea of it shrinking by more than 2% to be almost impossible. And for anyone who uh, remembers 2008, 2009, uh, which will be most of your listeners, the economy definitely did not, the US economy definitely did not grow 3% that year. It shrunk by almost 3%. And these are people whose jobs professionally were to make forecasts. And so, you know, let alone you or I who uh, don't put the word professional forecasters in our title. And it, it just kind of reiterates how poor we often are. We um, Confirmation bias is a thing. We don't seek out all the information available to us. And just generally speaking, we're not great. Humans generally aren't great at, at making predictions. And so the talk was about... Um, Half of it's about how flawed we are as human beings and, and the various things we do is inspired by Annie Duke's work around resulting. And so how we look at the outcome of a decision to indicate the quality of the decision itself. And actually, sometimes those things are inherently linked, but often there's a level of kind of uncertainty around, you know, there's a probability of certain outcomes and you can make the right decision and have the wrong outcome. But often if we see the wrong outcome, we assume that the wrong decision was made. And it was just starting to get people thinking about that. And so I outlined through um, kind of suggestions by Annie Duke and Nate Silver in his book, and particularly um, the guys at Twitch, the video game streaming company who have done a lot of work in this area, four things that you can do to kind of improve in this area. And those were running prediction training in your organization. So helping people actually think about these things and I guess giving talks a bit like the one I did, making them aware of how bad we typically are at these things, but then asking them questions. And so training often looks like you ask them 10 questions that have a quantitative answer. And you say, I don't want you to guess the answer, but I want you to tell me your 80% confidence interval. So what is the you know lower end and upper end of the answer that you'd give that makes you 80% confident that the answer will be in that range? And often you you ask them 10 questions and four of them are in the range or 10 of them are in, are in the range. And so they've either gotten way too broad or they're overconfident on what their answer should be. And obviously, if, if they were kind of well calibrated, their 80% confidence range, eight out of 10 would, would fall in the range. And so you then give them another 10, having kind of learned and adjusted their priors and their confidence of that first one. And they all almost always immediately improve. And so you can run training sessions to get people doing, uh, making better predictions day to day, even about small things, because it can have a meaningful effect on on the work that we do and how we, we run our organizations. And then the three other things were 
making those predictions day to day. So outside of training, actually making flash forecasts on a day to day basis, writing them down and returning to them has been shown to can really improve our ability to you know make better predictions. Running pre-mortems is a thing that can help us understand the risks a bit better uh, and kind of really understand uh, kind of going into a project, giving people the ability to raise the kind of uncertainty and the risks that they see, because often people are aware of them. We just don't give them the forum to, to voice them. And that can help people kind of think more probabilistically about what, what the outcomes are. And then finally, Annie Duke has this idea of, uh, just saying, do you want to bet? And the second you say that to someone, they immediately start thinking about how they could be overconfident or how they could be underconfident or what the actual probabilities of something are or and like what information isn't available to them. And it's, uh, you know, you can't, can't do so antagonistically. You need to have a culture that, that allows, you know, that type of thing. But just saying, do you want to bet to someone when they're thinking about something or they've said something can really help them kind of uh, think more in depth about about that decision. So that, uh, in a kind of long-winded way, is what what that. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so so in practical terms, I mean, how you you, you, you gave that presentation in a DBT event, and obviously you're involved in the Looker world. I mean, how 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 can you start to express this confidence factor really in the stuff you do in those tools? How because we tend to sort of say, you know, there's a number on the dashboard. It is this number here. It is saying that your your utilization is this, you know, whatever, whatever. There's not a huge. It's not as as common to show. Uh, maybe a range of values or things like that. How, how do you express that 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 kind of concept, really? So I don't think in much of the work we do, it gets expressed necessarily in a dashboard itself. But I think what the manifestation of it is, is that you have people who just think more about the fact that there is that range or that there is some uncertainty in it. I think having tools like Looker in your business are fantastic, but fundamentally you're shifting the point of analysis or of some analysis from people that 10 years ago, it would have been an analyst in your BI team. And now you're allowing people around the business to do that. And that's fantastic, but you need to kind of get them thinking the right way that allows them to understand particularly where there's correlation versus causation. I think that's one of the things that we jump to a lot and you see lots of people, you know, see a number and go, well, this correlates with that. And this type of talk and doing that type of work, I believe gets people thinking more about, uh, you know, what they know, what they don't know, what the other reasons for things could be. There's a that great website, Sp- Spurious Correlations, which shows you know 0.95 correlations between something like the amount of cheese people eat in a year and the number of suicides, or maybe it's Nick Cage films and suicides in the U.S. in a given year, and they correlate incredibly closely. Um, and so we can all, you know, we're uh, humans want to draw narratives and tell you know stories from data and it's just about getting people to think about whether the story that they're telling is the right one is the only one you can tell and kind of inherently digging a bit deeper because we want these people to do that analysis and we just need to promote uh, a way of thinking that that gets the most out of it okay fantastic so so just to kind of round things up really i mean <clears throat> how do people find out about you and how do people get hold of maybe these talks or maybe hear you speak or, or, or whatever really so my website is dbanalytics.co where they can find the, get in touch with me or find my twitter feed which is where i can be found about 19 hours a day uh and so that's the best place to get in touch with me if they want to 
hear me talk more than they just have. Uh, I host the DBT London meetups. The next one's going to be June 20th at Simply Business. Uh, if you go to meetup.com, you should be able to find it. We're uh, very excited. We've got some great speakers lined up. Uh, I won't be speaking, but I'll be uh, hosting and you'll be able to hear some great talks by other people. And then generally, I'm often around the DBT and uh, locally optimistic Slack channels in particular, I think is a place where I engage a lot in these types of conversations in threads with people who think about the same types of things. And uh, they're two great communities. And so I'd highly recommend them. And it's where uh, the five hours a day, I'm not on Twitter. That's where I am. Excellent. And will you be at the uh, the Looker um, uh, hackathon that's running in May in London? Yes, uh, I will. Absolutely. So May 17th in London. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be exciting to see. I've got uh, some clients coming along as well, which is great. And so it'll be great to see what people build. I think all the way through from kind of developments on the dashboarding side, all the way through to, I guess, where I'll be focusing more of my time, which is around the API and thinking about how you can improve the developer experience in in, in Looker via and other tools uh, with, with what they make available. Excellent. Well, Dylan, it's been great having you on the show. And uh, thank you very much for uh, you know, taking the time to speak to us about these things here. And, um, and hopefully I'll see you at the, uh, I'll see you at the DBT meetup and uh, you'll see us at the, um, the, the Looker one in London, hopefully sometime around that time as well. Other than that, thank you very much. And it's been great to have you. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, been a lot of fun. <laughs>